The information on this podcast is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All information contained on or related to this podcast is for general information purposes only. Hello everyone, I'm Chantal Wicks and this is Guts and Glory. Hello, listeners. Uh, Thanks for joining us again on Guts and Glory. Today, we have a very exciting episode with not one, but two amazing ladies. Uh, Both are registered dietitians. So we have Inez Martincevich, who is a dietitian at um, the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto. And we have Julie Cepo, who is a dietitian at my hospital, Mount Sinai. Uh, So ladies, thank you for joining us today. And Thank for you for having here. us. Definitely. I, I love this, this like power female thing, you know, it's amazing. Um, so Ines, tell us a little bit more about your background and what you do at Sick Kids. Um, yes. So um, I think people know Sick Kids. It's quite well branded. It's a pediatric institution. So I'm excited today to also have a colleague who works with adults to kind of speak to um, the importance of nutrition and diet and IVD. I work uh, with what's called a division of gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. It's a very large program at SickKids, so I don't just work with patients who have IBD. I work with patients who have a myriad of gastrointestinal diagnoses, some of which are autoimmune-mediated, like IBD, so celiac disease Mm -hmm. or um, eosinophilic-type diseases. And then I work with children who might have congenital issues. Um, that means that they're born with it. So syndromes that impact their, uh, I like to say this is by far not something I um, uh, created a tagline myself. I stole it from a colleague, but anything <laughs> from gum to bum. That yes, is gum my to bum. absolute tagline. I there love gum that, to bum. Was it? Dr. Mike Evans, he did a video about IBD and he says like, Crohn's disease is gum to bum. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I I have this ongoing joke where um, if I go to barbecues or weddings or events, I don't tell people I do pediatric nutrition because then it becomes work almost, you know, people start. So my child is eating this. Exactly. I have a picky eater. What do I do? You know, so I feel like because I work in GI and because I love gum to bum, I also tell people I'm a plumber. And if the plumbing's not working, I'm there to help the flow. And um, so I work with children who might be born with issues, syndromes, um, you know, anything from gum to bum. Right. Uh, so so I uh, I very much enjoy working with children. I love it. Plumber. Yeah. That's amazing. And I'm a, I'm a yeah, plumber, uh, day-to-day, uh, masked crusader working with nutrition at night. Yeah. Right. And Julie, you're you're a sort of plumber yourselves, I suppose, right? <laughs> My husband wouldn't agree with that. But, um, I, like Inez, also don't announce that I'm a dietitian when I'm in social situations because it leads to very interesting conversations. And you work but, with it. You're in about Sinai, so you're working with, with adults. Adults, yeah. correct. And at Mount Sinai, it's a it's a special situation because you have gastroenterologists working alongside the surgeons, and there's a lot of collaboration. And um, it's a privilege to be a part of their multidisciplinary team because we are all able to exchange ideas and care ideas for the people that we're working with. And it's been a very humbling 20 years. And as I just said to somebody I was working with yesterday, I cannot believe what people who live with IBD cope with to maintain their lives outside of the hospital. 
And by the time they come to the hospital and meet me, it's incredible what kind of shape they're in because um, they've How deteriorated. Tried, yes. And so I think it's important to, to call that out that both Inez and I work in a hospital situation. So we're not seeing as many of the people who are living well with IBD. We're and seeing dire situations. We're, we're seeing people who are quite sick. Right. Yeah. I, I can, from a personal perspective, um, I have a, I self-acknowledge, I have an extremely bad habit of waiting to go to emerge until I am in dire situations. Um, to be honest with you, like I, I, in the past, like I know how bad I get and I pack a bag before I go. Just in case, because you know, you know. might just yeah, I know need I'm, to be admitted. Yeah, yeah, I know it. I know. Yeah. But Chantal, like, wouldn't you also say that going to eMERGE is difficult because you're trying to help someone who might not understand IBD, what it is that you're experiencing? And even just, and I, my nurses, I love them all, you know, and the triage nurses, but how do I expect them to know what I am going through? And I may be in dire need, but I don't look necessarily like I am in dire need. And that is yeah. so hard to communicate and often very frustrating. It's also scary being an eMERGE when you're on immunosuppressants and, you know, like a hospital is an emergency department is a scary place <laughs> to is. be. Like it's also it's, a cesspool. Yeah, yeah, like it's just, it's terrifying. It and like sometimes the only comfortable place for me to be is like lying down and there's nowhere to lie down. No, <laughs> I'm going to sit really there for six point. hours. Like, yeah. honestly, so, and a lot of times, you know, oh my goodness, our GIs in this country are stretched thin. Like you can't call and get an appointment quickly. So sometimes the eMERGE is the only place to go. And and so to Julie's point about being privileged enough, multidisciplinary teams and that kind of practice isn't necessarily a worldwide, yeah, common um, type of setup. Um, I, I know in the adult world, and Julie, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but when we're transitioning patients, trying to find an adult gastroenterologist close to home is often a gastroenterologist that practices um, privately. So there right. isn't the nurse to call. There's admin support that you're calling. There isn't a trying whole, so they're not get, getting a registered dietitian. That's right. Yeah. They're not accessing all of these other resources. So we work in what's called tertiary acute centers where patients are really extremely unwell. But living with a chronic disease like IBD is more. It's that day-to-day, how do I improve my quality of life? How do I stay on top of things so that I am well enough knowing that potentially I will be in the eMERGE? I will have GI symptoms. I will have pain. I haven't eaten in days. Side effects of medication. Right. I'm worried about if I'm drinking enough um, and and trying to cope and deal with all of that. So that's the in the moment acute situation versus the day to day. So my role, unlike Julie's, is I do cover inpatients on an as needed basis. But my primary role is on the outpatient side where there are lots of patients coming into clinic and are otherwise doing well. You could even arguably say the physician has said they're in remission. Right. So but you're managing their long term. But we're managing long term. Right. And so accessing resources like myself becomes more challenging because we are stretched. Um, we are covering the need. We are triaging just like the rest of the and hospital. De- depending on the hospital that you're like, depending on the medical facility that a patient is going to, you may, they may not have access to someone like you. Oh, absolutely. A dietitian Yes. Not there. You may not be there. And so I find then people look to get support and, you know, um, advice. And so you're left to 
you know, whatever your abilities are, everybody functions differently in terms of how they access information. So we know we're in very much an online space culturally now. So you'll go to the internet. Maybe some people will go to bookstores, you right. know, and look right. along Absolutely. the health um, and chronic diseases shelves. Some people might actually ask friends or seek out other people and individuals affected to try to get information. But I feel like if I myself get overwhelmed by all the information out there and I'm trying to pull so out, down. absolutely, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. And then it's like, who do you trust? Who do you believe? Um, how do you navigate this space? Um, and so, you know, it's exciting to be able to be here and chat with you yes, I'm so to share information as well, because, you know, it, we would like to help individuals know where to go and where to seek support. And well, I can say, honestly, 13 years ago, I was diagnosed. And um, despite the fact that Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is a gastrointestinal disorder, and that's where your food goes, yes. <laughs> um, there was no talk to me about food and my disease. I was told from a professional, from a doctor, that the, the food, food doesn't impact my disease. If you eat something and it bothers you, don't eat it anymore. But for the most part, it's trial and error. Like, and granted, there is some components of that in my life that, yes, that is still now. Like, there are certain foods that bother me, like anyone, whether you're ill or not. And then there are foods that don't. And there are foods that did bother me and now they don't, or they didn't, and now they do. Um, but what about the whole aspect of, I've got inflammation in my intestines, and my intestines' jobs are to absorb certain nutrients and vitamins and minerals, and if they're, if they're inflamed, they're not doing those things, and who's paying attention to all my other levels? You know, mm -hmm. that wasn't a conversation. So I feel like we're getting better. I feel like our medical system is getting better. I've heard a lot of GIs specifically say that seeing a registered dietitian is very important and considering the food that you are eating and what you're not eating and what you're supplementing is extremely important, which like, it's like, thank God it is happening. It's not, it's not happening fast enough, to be honest. In my personal opinion, I think if you come with a diagnosis of a chronic illness, regardless of what it is, GI related or not, you should be given a referral to see a plethora of, in, of, individuals who specialize in different areas absolutely nutrition and diet that's my opinion i of course do not have a bottomless pit of a of a pocket that i can just be like and put the money here and but, but there's a philosophy around patient and family-centered care that says don't ask the people who are providing the care to come up with the best way to do things ask the people who've come through the system and live with the disease How what would help this? them and what yeah. they needed and what they didn't have access Agreed. to so, Absolutely, so we agree with you too. If I had yes. somebody say, if I was, you know, equipped with a full team to help with my mind, to help with my nutrition and my diet, to help with pain, like when I was first diagnosed, it would have greatly changed my path on this journey. Granted, I'm here now. Yes. Um, but you're embracing it as well. Absolutely, and, exactly. Yes. Like, and not everybody has the space within them to to try and take that on or, or tackle that. And so, there needs to be different ways to reach people wherever they are in their in managing their disease. And so, the online piece can help, even yes. though it's scary, terrifying. Um, <laughs> but there are, you know, Mount Sinai has support groups that, that they, do. they do offer, yeah. and the steering committee are people who live with IBD themselves. And 
there are um, podcasts and and things where people can access recordings and on trust, their own time. And trust, the thing is, like, information that you can trust. It's very hard to navigate what's out there. And I think that's one of the things that we here at Guts and Glory really pride ourselves on making sure that the information we share is trusted information and giving knowledge to IBD warriors that they wouldn't always hear or know about you know i i can't even i can't even tell you how many people i've met with ibd who when i've mentioned you know have you seen a registered dietitian have you um have you spoken to somebody about your thoughts and your feelings and have you went to any pain management and and they look at me like what like no i see my gi and i get my prescription and (laughs) and chantelle i think that echoes what julie and i experience sometimes um we'll meet patients at a point in their journey where they're probably at their worst. And it's extremely overwhelming. And so you're not just dealing with the doctor and disease control or the social worker and financially, how are you going to get through this journey because you're not working and you have to put bread on the table? And are you going to make rent this month? Are you going to be able to pay that visa off for all the parking passes you've paid for? Oh my gosh, parking. (laughs) Parking is like, and then, and then moving on to the mental health piece of, am I ready to accept all this information? Am I processing what's going on? Oh, and oh my goodness, by the way, I'm malnourished. Ah, what, what am I going to do about it? And, I mean, and sometimes so you don't even know through. we're malnourished because our right. symptoms like this, this. I feel like this. I I had no. I've I've been like actually you're malnourished um, twice in my life significantly. Um, I've had home care a nurse who's come to me. I went. Yes. To, I've taught with IV bags. Mm-hmm. Um, my students named it, it Tim. <laughs> I always <laughs> tell my patients to name their IV pool. <laughs> yeah, so, so I've had you know like Angus. I got and Tim. I've had, the you know, kids all named kinds it Tim. It was like an anonymous and, not. It's yeah. Tim, Miss Wicks. We're calling it Tim. Yeah, okay, whatever, guys. Um, and people name their stomas, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Oscar the Grouch was one of my favorite stoma names <laughs> he, when he got angry <laughs> or if he was hungry or something. But um, to your point, and just to circle back just to what you had mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, one of the things that I find um, is helpful for me in practice is actually taking a little bit of time to talk about the plumbing first. I, I find that if you know you mean like your the body it, more than how the often are you going to the bathroom? Right, you feel like those types of things. Yeah, yeah. but more so the um, and you're a teacher. You can appreciate this. If you yeah, teach totally, science. Totally. It's literally the anatomy. So what yeah. does gum to bum mean? Because a lot of people will say things like, "Oh, you know, in the stomach where we absorb nutrients." And I say to them, "Absolutely not. That's not the role of the stomach. What do yeah. you think the stomach does?" And kind of sort of going through gum to bum with them and then asking them, do you know where your disease is located? And then how does inflammation impact you based on where it's located? Because then some of the recommendations that we make make more sense. I feel like I, I could, <laughs> I could just, just give you a handout, but the handout doesn't make sense unless you know why. Yeah. And so, you know, it is a little bit of extra time, but I feel like it makes that difference because speaking about nutrition and diet, I find people interchange those words all the time. And for me, they're different. Yes. Assessing nutritional status is more than just diet and what you're eating. And so from a clinical perspective, as a clinician, your nutritional status not only impacts how you're feeling, but it impacts your outcomes, right? Right. So physicians will say, you've lost a significant amount of weight. You haven't eaten in days. You are trying to mitigate your symptoms, meaning you're trying to help those symptoms, the pain, the outputs. Like I have teenagers. Who don't eat because they don't want to go to the bathroom. Exactly. They will intentionally avoid eating breakfast 
even though they know and everyone's heard it and everyone, you know, has been nagged about it. Breakfast <laughs> is the most important meal of the day and it's so annoying so, when so I say true, it. So that's true, you know? Is this true? It is true. <laughs> okay. It depends what time you get up, right? <laughs> well, <that's> true, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> but, but we talk about diet and that's important, but that's not, that in and of itself is not assessing nutritional status. So I feel like if patients are able to differentiate between the two, and then one of my biggest questions to patients are, okay, you know, we'll help you with defining nutritional status. That's done as part of the team. That's the clinical side. But if you're coming to me to ask about diet, I always answer the question with a question to say, what is it that you want to know about the diet? Or how is it that diet's important to you. I want you to tell me because what I feel happens is, is to your point when people hear physicians say, well, you can eat whatever you want. And if you find a food that troubles you, stop. avoid it, stop eating it, take it out of your diet. Let's see how things go. That's not necessarily the information that patients are wanting to hear. Um, no, it's not, it's not helpful. That, yeah, that, I think they think that saying that will give us a... <sighs> Really? Well, it's like a get out of jail card, right? But it right? doesn't. But help, I think though. Julie and I, um, one thing that we know, and this is not just IBD specific, but in Canada, Canadians in general are just eating extremely poorly relative to yeah. what it is that we know is important to nourish your body and what intake should be like day to day. So I feel sometimes there's this misinterpretation when medical staff say, eat whatever you want. Because I know teenagers, all they hear mm-hmm. is, is yes, donuts and, <laughs> you know, Taco Bell. Yeah. And you heard the doctor. They said, eat what you want. Yeah. And it's like, no, no, that's misconstrued. Well, I also that feel is not like the message. The worst I've got in 11 days, I lost 32 pounds. That was yeah. the worst. I, like, that's I, that's I, my, significant. Yeah, yeah. My, my, and that that was the, the sickest I had been. And it shows point. how dehydrated you were. Oh, too. my goodness. Yeah. It was like, ugh, I can't even. And when I climbed out of that very, like that, it took me a year at least to get over that flare. Like, I walked with a cane. I had to build your muscle, muscle issues. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty significant road that I had went down. Um, but I've... We have this, I have this thing that I say, you need to be a VIP. I consider myself a VIP. I'm a very informed patient. Oh. So <laughs> I, like I, like the, I like the questions that you said you asked the patients, like, where is your disease? Yes. And I, I'm, I bet you there's more patients out there who don't actually know specifically. You know? There are many. Many. And, yeah. Yes. And, and this is valuable information that you need to know. And, and it's important to know. So when Ines takes the time to explain that, or, you know, we'll use diagrams, yes. we'll draw for not only the patient, but also their family, because then the patient becomes more empowered to speak yes. about their own disease. And when someone yes. says, oh, you have Crohn's, you shouldn't eat this, or you shouldn't <sighs> eat that, they can turn around and say, thanks for your thoughts, but actually (laughs) my disease affects me here and I know it's okay if I have that food or this is what I need to worry about and it's different from what you need to worry about. So I Uh, think dietitians uh, help empower people that way. Oh, the people, I've had family members of like, you're eating that? How are you eating that? Like you have... And it's not a license to make comments about other people and the way they eat. But, excuse you. But it's part it happens of the all the time. <laughs> and it's part of the reason I, I, I'm going to speak for Julie here that we actually <laughs> don't advertise our roles because the first thing that people will automatically say to me is, is are you really eating fries? Um, and I'll say, yes, I do enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, um, but there, if there was there, poutine, I'd have one of those too. But you know, I, I'm still human as well. Uh, and 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 just going back to this space of unsolicited advice, where if you are comfortable enough to divulge your condition, um, the last you know, thing you need is somebody telling, telling you how to manage, you how to manage it. it. It's not. It's. I don't find it productive. I don't find it helpful um, in the long run. Maybe it's in the very, moment. It's very it's negative. Also, very yeah. confusing. And, and um, it's about knowing how your disease is also different than somebody else that has the same label. One of the things that I tell patients as well is that, granted, you've been given a diagnosis or label, however you want to call it, as Crohn's disease. But that doesn't mean that just because you have Crohn's disease, your experience, particularly your diet journey, is going to be the same as someone else. So, and 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 I feel like in that same breath, this umbrella of inflammatory bowel disease has evolved even in the time that I've been practicing. For so sure. I've been so working difficult. with so different than so I've been working at Sick Kids now for almost twelve years, and so that's where I can say a very very focused attention to GI diseases. My personal passion is autoimmune conditions like IBD, um, and that's why I put extra energy into it. But at the time that I started learning about IBD more and working with patients, there was a different understanding of the, we call it pathogenesis in medicine, so kind of learning more. Yeah, it's kind of learning more. I do these things at work. You're going to laugh at me. Hashtag pathogenesis. <laughs> this like English to English translation. So yeah. I'm like, this is what we call it when we're reading literature reviews. What does it mean to you is sort of what was that um, perfect storm that, you know, caused the disease, this cause and effect that people talk so, about. of course. Versus yeah. you now have it. Right. Are we able to mitigate it, manage it? We, we use these words. And so to even say that everybody under the IBD umbrella is going to have the same course and trajectory is an assumption. And I feel like it's this false assumption because even in, you know, it's an exciting time of learning about nutrition and diet and IBD, gastroenterologists will tell you clearly, Crohn's disease is not the same as ulcerative colitis. Nope. They are two completely different conditions. They, they behave differently. Pathologies <laughs> are different. Um, outcomes are different. And so to feel that a single diet or a specific nutrition course is going to be effective for everyone when even under that umbrella, we now have a new category called IBDU, an unclassified form of IBD, where not even the staff can tell you if you're UC, if you're Crohn's. So this or, is where I fit. Yeah, actually. I was going to say, I feel like so, you've lived this. Yeah, you've so I've just been, this. I've just been, I, you know, my first diagnosis was ulcerative colitis. Okay. Um, and then I had a couple of flares, hospitalizations, ulcerative colitis. And then um, I had one significant flare. Um that presented, as they said, as Crohn's disease. It was in my esophagus. It was in my mouth. Mm -hmm. It went, extended through the mucosal lining of my intestines. And then after that, then I had another, like, presented ulcerative colitis flare. So I'm right. definitely in the IBDU category <laughs> because my body decides to do whatever it wants. But you mentioned two things. One thing, and this is something we've said before on the show, but you're hearing it again here from professionals, listeners. Um, you did not eat something to cause your IBD. So if you have this guilt associated yeah. in your head that there was something that you ate or there's something that you fed your child that made them ill, um, stop 
stop it. Stop thinking that um, because it is a, we are a host and there was a perfect storm, as you said. Very complicated. I, I see the Venn diagram of genetics and <laughs> mm -hmm. social experiences and food and all the Venn diagram that comes together. And in a perfect yes. little host, you know, it happens to us. Yep. And it happened. And this was not something you can stop. And sometimes also it's important that we help absolve people of that guilt that yes. they're feeling because they'll say, I tried this diet and look, I'm still here. Mm. And you know yes. that's not the case. And eating is a very complex behavior. And we bring our backgrounds to it. It has meaning in our in our lives with our family, socially. Absolutely. We all have our individual taste preferences. We all have our individual tolerances and intolerances. Whether you have IBD or not. And then you like, add yes. IBD to that. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of tendency for people to take on some of the responsibility when really they're already dealing with enough as it is by the time they're in a hospital. I have yes. never met, and I have met thousands of people with IBD in the last 13 years from my public speaking, from this podcast, from you know the, guts and, um, the gutsy walk that I run in Durham, but I have never once met somebody with IBD who has a diet exactly the same as mine. So For sure, yeah, it's, and it is or it's and I nearly impossible. Yeah, I would argue, and I don't even right? I don't even think my like in 13 years my diet hasn't even stayed consistent because there are times when I've needed more of this and less of this, and depending on where my disease is at the time, where how my disease has evolved, whether I'm closer to remission, whether I'm flaring, my diet changes there as well, and I cannot navigate this on my own. I, I'm not a professional in this area. like. But you know yourself. Yeah. And isn't it a good thing that your diet has changed over time? Because food should be something that can bring us joy as well. I love yes. food. And I hate it too, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are times where you can feel like it, it's betraying you when you're trying Absolutely. to eat foods that you've previously been okay and now with. I can't and, and so finding your way yes. out of that and trying things again is different for different people, how how they take that on. Um, but I think it's really important that, that the listeners know that it's not something that they've done. It's a much more complicated relationship than that. Well, I think as well too, like we, we look, um, social media, as you said, could be a, a positive, but it also yeah. is quite a negative. And it's very hard to navigate when you don't have background knowledge about yourself and your disease. Um, but you read, you know, that somebody tried this diet and they, you know, I hate the word, but they say it cured their IBD. And, and then you, you get this hope that, oh, well, I'm going to try that diet too. And if, if they have IBD and they were cured, um, and I'm not saying that these people who are sharing their experiences haven't found symptom relief um, from their disease. Um, I always want to check back in with them three years later and be like, are you still feeling okay? <laughs> or are you still adhering to said diet? Because yeah, I think and, that's another consideration with diets as well. So sorry to interrupt. No, but like also what are you lacking when you take this diet? If you stop right. eating all of these foods, what are you doing to replace all those foods that you used to eat and what they used to give you? So I would say you've hit on two major points of at least from my personal practice that I address when I meet with families. The first one being what it is that you have read. And I'm not going to take anything away from other people's experiences. I actually get thrilled if I meet somebody who has been able to tailor their intake and select foods that has optimized their health. 
Right. It, it genuinely How makes me happy. How did you find happy. your success? Yeah, right. Because yeah. there's some conditions I work with where it is a little bit more black and white, you know, and I can say if you have celiac disease, that's an absolute no. <laughs> you are not eating You that. are not <laughs> going there, you know, um, versus if I meet someone with IBD, because it's such a complicating condition. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm a very visual person and I like to show pictures and unfortunately this is a podcast, so I can't go there, <laughs> but, um, you know, and I won't take the time to describe it cause I won't do it justice. But having said that, um, my, my point was going to be around using that word cure. And uh. I feel like that's a genuine hope for people. And, you know, if somebody, you know, says cure, other people are going to latch on to that. It's a very powerful word. It's a terrible we word. We certainly at don't, time. at the same time, we certainly don't use it in practice. What we say is we're helping manage your condition. Right. Manage so your symptoms, manage we your condition. Are, exactly. So when someone, and I tell my families this, when you read something that's a bit more personal, and let's say we, we function in a role that is referred to, and I'm sure you've heard it before, evidence-based. Yes. And that evidence-based term turns a lot of people off, in my experience, you know, because they'll say to me, well, you're just waiting for all the evidence to tell you that this diet is going to work, but I want to do something now because I can't, somebody I can't else has... This. Right. Yeah. And so part of our profession is that we are accountable to our patients. You know, we don't want to jeopardize their health by necessarily recommending or supporting a diet, like you said, that maybe might compromise their nutritional status or in my practice in pediatrics is growth. Their growth, yeah. Um, you know, and their development. So what I tell my families is, is diet is absolutely, without a doubt, you will never find a physician who will disagree with you about this. Diet absolutely influences your symptoms. 100%. How you yeah. eat, and that's regardless of IBD, but it's a message that I stress because you can have symptom improvement. I'm not saying resolution. You can absolutely have symptom improvement with how you eat, without a doubt. But I think sometimes what happens, and I'll speak to the patients that I've communicated with, what happens is, is there's a misunderstanding between symptom resolution and disease control. The Once whole, the symptoms go away, you think your disease is fine, but then you right, go for a colonoscopy and the doctor's like, well, Correct. you still have some yes. activation, yes. you know? So I live yeah. in a world of analogies. I love analogies. That's why I'm a plumber, you know, and I'm a very visual person. And I feel like if I can make it something that's relatable, it works. Um, but if you talk to somebody who has diabetes, and I'm not just talking about type 1 diabetes, I'm just talking about diabetes in general, so a glucose intolerance. And they say to you, I've been able to manage my disease with diet. So I'm not on insulin or I'm not on metformin or whatever it right, may right, be. Right. But that doesn't mean that they still say they don't have diabetes, right? They manage it. However, I find with IBD, people will say, I cured it. And now all of a sudden, there's no IBD. I don't understand and why I this word is associated. Like, it, that, and it's yeah. so powerful. And so I tell families, look, we will work on symptom improvement. But what we need is open, transparent communication with your whole team. You know, we're not here to... Um, necessarily judge your interests and in how you would like nutrition to help you, but you need to continue to do blood work and you need to continue to do your imaging and you need to continue to have those scopes to evaluate even when disease you're feeling fantastic. because even yeah. when you're feeling fantastic and I've had this, I've had patients that are asymptomatic 
and and they get reevaluated and their disease is not in control. So so you know, managing symptoms versus disease control are two different things. But then I also find what happens with diet is people want to use diet to displace any of the other management options that are available. No, and that's the most coexist. challenging. Yes. I, it's got to be a happy relationship. Yes, yeah. And so as dietitians, you work with the GIs. You work yes. with, there's communication. There's, like, this is Constant not just. Constant conversation. Separated. Oh, yeah. Like, there's days where I come home and there is no spit in my mouth. It's a desert, <laughs> you know, because we'll sit there and we go back and forth. And, you know, we really, really dig deep. And, and that's one of the advantages. I always say I'm spoiled at Sick Kids because I have access to resources. But individuals who practice in isolation, which is mostly physicians, where they don't have necessarily that big care team, it becomes harder. So part of us being here today and on this podcast is to advocate, you know, around accessing resources that include like yourself right rds or people like yourself um right mm-hmm. and that also includes you know other venues because for me also food isn't just about you know um what you're picking and how you're preparing it it's also global it's about food accessibility food security you know it's even the relationship easy. with food i said i have a absolutely so getting food. the mental health getting the so I could sit here with Julie and her and I could arguably review the evidence, read the literature, put together the absolute ideal, I don't like to use the word perfect, I don't think it exists, but the ideal diet for an individual patient. You mean patient. I can go home and be ready? Like, yes. To just, eat what, <laughs> just <laughs> eat what it is. And then, and then we'll offer it to a family can't afford it. Right. How do I really help my patients when I know that we live in a country where Food is not available for the bulk of the year. So we rely on food industry to bring food to us, right? And then in addition to that, so that's accessing food. So if you live in some rural communities, you can't. It is delicious, <laughs> right? But you live in a rural area, and unfortunately, you can't access the same things as people in Toronto do. And then in addition to that, I have parents who ultimately would do whatever they could. They're, they're trying to, um, as other individuals who've been on this podcast say, they want to fix. And I find one of the things that you can control in an uncontrollable situation is what, what you, you buy and what, what you, you eat. eat. You, you can control it, but, but then you try to get what you think is best for you and you find you can't afford it. So you, you, or you, know, you don't have the energy to prepare it. Absolutely. Oh my it. goodness, that's yeah. a huge one. And then you're eating out. Yes. It's also convenient. Oh, you know, I have. That's what you can manage. And yes. then you end up feeling guilty. Guilty. And it's a very and then that's a vicious cycle. cycle. Right. That goes the into Julie Inez diet, you know, yeah. and you yeah. just can't afford. So I feel like there's also a lot of considerations. So working in pediatrics, especially, I've had children crying, I've had them oh. upset. And they've said to me, can you just tell my caregiver, so they might use the word mommy or, you know, it might not be biological caregiver, but they'll say, can you just tell them I'm allowed to have pizza? Oh, my heart. Because, you know, it's been, quote, removed or eliminated from the diet. and, And then, you know. By the time the family comes to me, they're so confused and overwhelmed, you know, because it'll be, well, this child's crying in clinic. Can you please see them and help the family navigate all of the different layers of diet? So framing, you know, this really long, you know, several minute conversation, you know, nutrition is not the same as diet, but diet also isn't just that, quote, magic bullet that is going to fix Fix everything. It is very much holistic. And and our community doesn't take anything away from that. If we had a diet 
to give you. We would. It is our <laughs> ultimate goal. I want to say that I want to scream it from the rooftop. But I, you know? I think that also speaks to the individualized care that a Absolutely. dietitian will give to any family. Yeah, yeah. because um, as rich dietitians, you're looking at our blood work. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're yes. taking, you're not, you're. There we're looking at your path we reports, yes. your ultrasound reports. Right. So you're not we just asking us to everything. make a list of what we typically eat on no, a regular no. day. It's not handing out a piece of paper that no. says eat this or don't eat that. Right. You mentioned before you've never met an another person living with IBD who's had the same diet as you and we experience the same thing at work. Yes. I can't even and, imagine how you guys do your jobs. Well, in Toronto, <laughs> it's very interesting and you get to learn a lot yes. about how other um, cultural backgrounds Culture. eat and we get to experiment with foods and yeah. look at foods and taste different foods. I think that's what someone who's conscientious about their work would do. Yes. But it also speaks to the fact that many people who live with IBD come from different backgrounds, eat different foods right from cooking from scratch all the way to eating out all the time, and they all live with the same disease. But the challenge lies in helping them find a way to healthier eating over time because there's short-term goals and there's long-term goals. And you mentioned you had a very very serious time with your disease where you lost a lot of weight. And so maybe initially um, the short-term nutrition goals yes, are improving nutrition status. Yeah. And, yes. and that can also mean with foods that people don't typically associate with being healthy. Potato yeah. chips. So we do that. You needed the potatoes. salt. So yeah. We carry yeah. that the on the hospital yeah. menu. And yeah. I, one of the, when yeah, I was so in the assignment, one of the dietitians <laughs> yeah. was like, You're, I, they gave me potato chips for breakfast. I was right. like, what is happening? But, but, but <laughs> that's the thing too. Not all potato chips are the same. No. And that's yeah. the part that I think people forget when they do apply diet. So this it is becomes true. an you've all given, or none. You've we given someone what you need it. In the kitchen. <laughs> yes, but think about it. Potato chips, they're high calorie. They Lots help to thicken yeah. stool. There's yes. potassium. Yep. There's and sodium, sodium. And you might enjoy eating them yeah. at a time when you're trying to... to <laughs> they're so delicious. <laughs> yes. well, but not everybody likes them. And so that's right. where the challenge lies with us to then find other foods other that can have yep. positive effects on their symptoms, help them heal their relationship with food, and also break stereotypes around what's good and bad because neither Ines nor I talk about foods as being good or bad. Never. They're not. They're not. But we talk about what's the safe food that yes. you try or what's worked for you or tell me, I think one of the most power, powerful things a dietitian does is tell me about how you eat, what's worked for you and and where your space is, where your, yes. right. your mind is around your diet. Well, I assume and, you would have to listen to, like you mentioned taste, like foods that just the thought of it, it like and it's aversive. And, yeah, that's me and eggplant. Yeah, and Oof. then you're gonna have to you're gonna have to okay. Well, then we have to try a food that can give us a, a nutritional value that's similar to this because we can't just. But that's our job that's to our help. Job. Yeah, because I don't have a clue. Yes. Like. And, and by all means, I love it. Yeah, right. And Baba ganoush, I love it. Like, and it is so different from person to person. But would you person. eat it every day? That's no. the thing. And that's the thing. You need. Yes. There needs to be finding that joy back in eating around what you consider you're willing to do and what we think are options that are good for you to have. And, and so, that's yes. it's a dialogue. It's a negotiation. It, it, so can and, and that's with what IBD it is. eat spicy food. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I had Indian last night and it was delicious. (laughs) Yeah, but but to say that everyone will tolerate spicy Mm -hmm. food 
it, it may it's not false. be the it's case. And if, um, if yeah, you I can't have a tolerate fear, Indian all the time either. No, right. But it, what if you were afraid of something and then you met with a dietitian who said, no, no, you have to eat this food. It's not a good relationship. We have to. I don't even know if I would go back. Right. Exactly. So, and, and many people don't. Like I've met families who say they've met with colleagues, um, but the just message one was little conveyed that was yes. Sad. There's yeah. there's a message that gets conveyed that might get misinterpreted, or it's it is about perceptions, which is why I like to answer questions with questions because I really do like to get to know my patients and families, and and really tell them that. Um, ultimately, we are here to support you. This is to be holistic and complementary. So I can't help you if you don't share with me. If you have yeah, tried diets, I don't want to you to open. be scared about that. You know, mm-hmm. a, a, a gastroenterologist or another care member might say to you, well, there isn't a diet, so you can eat what you want. And, and again, I go back to those words because I feel like in my practice, I keep hearing that over and over again. And so I say to them, well, but, but what do you think that means? What does that mean to you? I'm here to clarify that because, no, I'm sorry, you know, 17-year-old boy who just got diagnosed. It doesn't mean you're going to live on Red Bull and Timbits, you know? <laughs> Nobody's giving you that advice. And, and but why change. does it get interpreted that yeah. way? I don't know. And, yeah, Julie said it. She hit the nail on the head, you know. Um, that's what makes a lot uh, about studying diet and IBD so challenging. So when we rely on what we call evidence-based practice guidelines, but it's moving in the right direction. And it's exciting because diet has more attention and there is more research being done, I think, than ever before. Ever before. More so, I think, for Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Well, I also think with the microbiome, right? That's the sexy one. (laughs) It's the new. I saw microbiome (laughs) on a commercial. They said the word. Yes. And it was Represented Dump by has like commercials it was now. represented by like a like it looks like balls like you know like little yes. t- like in a kids play place that's yes. how they, this is your microbiome <laughs> but, but people work well with images and as you know totally. says analogies yeah. and yeah. it helps translate scientific knowledge into something that people can understand, understand or or even for kids something that they visually can can get their mind around and yes. so it's important so I have another question mm-hmm. um, I am terrible. You can ask my husband. He will tell you. <laughs> yes. I am absolutely terrible at hydration. Uh, he fills up my little tiny water bottle. Likewise, I'm a camel. Yeah, it fills up my yeah. little tiny water bottle. Uh, you, you took a drink of water just then? I was like, oh. <laughs> um, of water every I'm day. I'm trying. And it's yeah. not about being perfect. It's about your yeah. journey towards being and a little I, bit better. I come home every, every evening and my water bottle is... Full. And if, yes. it's, if it's not full and there's a little bit out of it, it's because on the way home, I drink it because I know my husband's going to shake it when I get home because he's really good at drinking water. Like he's really good at mm-hmm. it. Um, tell me about hydration and IBD. So, so I need to drink yeah. lots of more. more <laughs> so I, I think people who live with IBD, particularly when they're having a flare and they're having more fluid loss because they're passing more bowel movements, I think then it's really important to give that fluid back to your body. And it doesn't need to be water. Mm-hmm. It can be a number of different can it fluids. Be soup? Of course, it okay. can be soup. It can be. It can be a frozen dessert. It because can be ice fruit cream, if you tolerate if you it, if you take dairy products, ice cream is actually a liquid when you think about it. It is. That's it's just frozen. That's, 
and 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 for patients <gasps> where they're <laughs> for patients and we, in particular, we have no stocks in Baskin yeah. Robbins or no, those other don't. places. No. Just, I'm just gonna have ice cream and, every day and, at recess uh-huh. between my classes. <laughs> <laughs> like, and, I, and I say frozen desserts too, because much like Julie said, some people do avoid dairy. I would say of my patients that have colitis, whether that be ulcerative colitis or Crohn's colitis, will often tell me that they don't tolerate dairy, especially during a flare. So there may be even periods, as we were saying, diet changes where you do change what you're eating depending on what you're experiencing. Like um, the low residue diet is one of the ones that's been around for eons. I feel like archaeologists could dig it up somewhere, you know, in the sub-Sahara. But (laughs) but really what happens is, is, again, people misconstrue. The diet, which limits uh, very fiber-rich foods, so like berries, Kids love berries, um, but there's seeds in them. And so I've had families say to me, oh, I've been following the low residue diet for years. I thought that that's the diet for colitis. And and I'll say, no, it's a temporary intervention because what it's used for, (laughs) yeah. And what it's used for is to help patients where we are worried about stricturing, we're worried about narrowing. Um, So that can either be the tissue that's had long-term damage happen secondary to the inflammation. So now it's tight. It's the way that I explain it, scar tissue, it's not moving. So the way I explain it to kids is I say, you know, when you put a hole in your sweater and somebody stitches it up, the stitching doesn't look the same. So you can identify where the hole was. That's what's happening inside the bowels. There's, there's really not much that can be done for the condition when it gets to that point. Usually it becomes surgery. Usually, mm-hmm. not always. But having said that, if you think about plumbing and there's a narrowing in the piping, you obviously don't want to put a lot of stuff that could get stuck and above the narrowing. Yeah. And that's where it can be a but, diet to apply. But, yes, but again, is- that doesn't mean that kids can't eat berries ever again. No, you have to um, as the not disease evolves. Nothing. It's not yeah. all or nothing. And I think that's the difference that I find in my practice between trying to explain to families the role of diet as part of management and then answering their question around diet as being therapeutic. Therapy or treatment is to work directly on the inflammation versus managing, which is staying on top of your nutritional status, managing your symptoms, making sure that you've got healthy lifestyle habits as part of caring for yourself. So when we talk about this being an exciting time in IBD research and where a lot of There's a lot of research a lot food. of studies are going around food, they're looking at how does it influence the inflammation because what I find people are wanting is, is they're wanting a diet versus medicine. This well, is the message that I'm getting. Yeah. Right? Well, I think it's the which is different than like the medicine world day. is sometimes scary. Yeah, it is scary. And in the IBD world, biologics is a is a newer medication on the market. Myself, I'm on a biologic, and I had my own reservations about stepping up to this level of well, I. I felt it was a step up in level of medication. With more knowledge, I realized it's not necessarily a step up in terms of safety or anything like that. Um, Other medications I've taken could be far worse on my body. So a lot of people look at food as wanting it to be a replacement for therapy because it's comforting because we think food is good food is okay well it's like also it's, that cause and it's not effect. a medicine it's not made in a yeah, petri dish it's safe like, it's benign yeah. and yeah often people do a cause and effect like you know i'll meet patients who'll say well i had 
tomato sauce and I had the pasta with the tomato sauce for like two days in a row and that's when I started feeling the worst so I can't eat tomatoes again. Um, but it may not have had anything to do with the tomatoes. Well, especially how we, long we it takes know. food to impact our body. And Absolutely. People think like, you know, they eat something and then it causes them, and then they go to the bathroom immediately after and they think it's like they just chewed the food and now it's coming out the other end. But it's, just, a, it's a powerful relationship, yes. especially if there's discomfort yeah. or pain if you eat and then that's what you experience. Immediately. I think it's only natural, natural. that you think. 100%. Absolutely. Take anything away Especially from if that you, understanding. Like, if you do a trial where you're like, okay, I'm going to wait a week and I'm going to try this mm-hmm. again and see how I feel. But we're not looking at, you know, a food journal is something I've, said quite often I think is important for people to do especially if you have IBD I'll granted it is a complete pain in the ass (laughs) unintended Um, but I've had my own you know my own food journals where I've recorded what I eat when I eat it how I feel and then I've had a section where I've recorded you know at the same time my bowel movements what they looked like Mm -hmm. I, I Used a stool chart online. You know? Oh, yeah. You're not shocking us at all. Yeah, yeah not this at is all. What we do this every is, day. And but, we get emails, all kinds of delicious was, pictures. Yeah, I was shocked <laughs> to see what I discovered when I look back at patterns of weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not the instant, I ate this and I didn't feel good. Right. You know, I have a friend whose father has um, ulcerative colitis and he's had surgery, so he has a J pouch now. And he discovered in his food journal that, uh, well, at least what he could figure out was um, garlic, but only garlic powder. Like it took him almost a year. Wow. I was to, like, that's quite specific. Yeah, yeah. He went down to like ingredients because mm-hmm. he got to the point where I was like, he's like, what is happening? You right. know, and th- I think there's a lot that can be discovered there. But I'll be honest with you. I didn't see that in my food journal alone. Right. I had a professional who looked at it with a fresh set of eyes. I think one important point you touched on is the timeline. You said if, you know, if I if I did the food journal for a week, anytime you're making changes to your diet, it's important to set so a time period so that you also don't develop um, yeah. malnutrition from avoiding certain foods over so the long term. You guys had talked about diet and, and food, and I, I'll be honest, like I would say for years, kid you not, for years, I basically ate the same breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Because it was safe and you yeah. knew you could have the outside life that you wanted to have. Well, I thought have, it was and- safe. Well, safe for you. Safe yeah, for it you. Was, it was yeah. safe for um, how I felt, mm-hmm. but long term, it wasn't safe to what I was doing with my body because yeah. I did not have a balanced diet. And well, it, it also was prob- depriving yourself of certain well, vital nutrients. My eyesight um, diminished a bit. Uh, my teeth, like there were other elements that I, now, as an informed patient, I realized, like, holy shit, I, I did that. But you also might not have gone to certain social situations because other foods might have been offered there. 100%. You know how many weddings and parties I avoided because I was like, I can't go there and not eat. Oh, my God. And then as soon as you choose not to eat something, people start questioning it. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it's such an open, judgmental topic, but it's so uh, um, unreal how comfortably people will not only diagnose you, but then immediately tell you what to eat and it'll make it all better. Um, And I think, you know, to break it down, nutrition is one of those things. I don't just tell my families this. I tell like new staff that are, you know, residents that are training and whatnot, um, nurses that are new to the team. You've got to give nutrition time. It is not a quick fix. I always say it's not Advil when you have a headache. And it's not Tylenol when you have a fever. Yeah. It is 
time. So yeah. even of our interventions where we might use in like pediatrics, where we might use in Crohn's disease, we use something called exclusive enteral nutrition to treat. And sometimes you are an appropriate patient to be offered this therapy. Um, we say two months. Okay. So everyone who's right? listening, I've been lawyers, you are like pros. <laughs> You Six to pros. eight weeks, yeah, everyone. You are pros when it comes to somebody telling you you need to be patient. Yes. Speaking <laughs> from personal experience, it is totally ridiculous that you have to be patient and we hate it. And we want to take a Tylenol because we shouldn't be. Right. Everyone wants We that want quick to fix. take a Tylenol that's going to make us like better really fast. Yep. But, you know, I'm on a biologic right now. And, you know, I asked, my, I asked Dr. Silverberg, Dr. Silverberg, when do you think I will be feeling some symptom relief? And his response was to me, I kid you not. <laughs> he said two weeks to 14 to 17 weeks. I said, what? What do you mean? Yeah. Like start again? Time. Like, yeah. you know, and other, but, but we're used to hearing this guys. We're used to hearing that we're on this medication and we're not going to feel, it's not an antibiotic. You're not going to feel better in three days, you know? So I don't know why we always think that this, like our food intolerances or our food tolerances or our food comfortabilities and our nutritional levels are going to literally change overnight because it so, cannot yeah. happen. Like you, you hit two you, points there. You need to be patient. One is, is your disease journey changes. So to think that your diet cannot change with it, it is not fair to yourself. Your medication You're being changes. very mean to yourself. And if you are open to trying a diet and you have seeked the advice of, let's say, an RD yeah. who works holistically with other care members to ensure that the nutritional status is not being compromised. Because some of the diets that are out there that are advertised, they are so limiting. It's very difficult to meet your nutritional needs without, oh, I don't know, I'm going to throw it out there, eight other supplements that you have to take <laughs> to make up for the difference. Like I've seen, I've seen way more than eight on lists. Um, but you, you've got to be fair to yourself and you've got to know what the role is. What researchers have done now is they've taken, quote, that evidence, that information that we know that may be associated with your bowels not being healthy to create nutrition care plans. I like to call them nutrition care plans instead of diet because I feel like when I say the word diet, people think of Weight Watchers. Mm -hmm. and, so, and restriction. And restriction. And it's always yeah. very negative, negative, negative. So I very much, even in my own practice, I'm always learning and I'm always striving to improve. So one of the things that I'm not good at is what's referred to as MI or motivational interviewing where you try to this? take your approach to talking to patients and trying to get more information in a positive way. So for example, instead of me saying to somebody, don't drink pop, that in and of itself is a very negative sentence. Don't. Right away, it's like a big red circle with a line going through it, yeah. right? Versus, I would encourage you to drink more water. Right. Very oh, it's, much it's using a positive approach. We do this as teachers. And it's using putting it back statements. to you yeah. and to say, okay, so we're going to work on that together. Um, I'm going to tell you my concerns. I'm going to facilitate an informed decision. So over the years, there has been more feedback. We've been listening. The research community and the medical community has heard. We will all tell you that diet plays a role. Nobody's dismissing that. But it depends on what you want diet to do. So if you want diet to necessarily replace medicines, we haven't gotten there yet. No, and I feel like so, if you're going to go to a, a professional who's 
who's encouraging that, you should perhaps seek a second opinion. In my it, it could IBD, be a safety, it's a yeah. risk concern. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I think that where in my practice gets concerning to me is where we see diets um, that individuals are not quote giving up on and persisting. And unfortunately, we see the disease progressing. And so it becomes, I don't want to say a battle, but it becomes a more um, passionate conversation um, where we're trying to say, we still want you to um, eat well, okay? So diet where people are like, oh, okay, I'll just, you know, eat a little bit of chocolate cake because I'm trying to lose weight is right. very, and I feel like that's the general lay take on diet, but diet, when you're talking about diet for disease has a role and we monitor and we, we, we stay involved. Um, but to, to not, um, feel that you're being heard is the message I want to deliver today. All of the information that patients have provided the medical community is being heard and applied. The reason why, why we don't I, have I see something, the change too. Yeah, I see there, there's more. There's more discussion about it. There's, there's more also more acceptance. There's also that evidence. So yeah. ten years ago, we didn't have any evidence, and now we're learning from animal models. From animal models, we translate to you know understanding with humans, and then moving forward applying it to diseases, right? Where we're trying to say, you know, is there a different way that somebody with UC can eat versus somebody with, you know, um, Crohn's can eat? But, you know, one huge take-home message that I think a lot of people agree on in general is, is that this cultural Western diet, this diet that's rich in saturated fat, sodium, convenience, processed foods, so much processed foods, foods, full of filler that, you know, mother nature didn't intend for our bowels to tolerate, you know, so this is that microbiome element Mm -hmm. that confuses the picture and clouds it. So one of the things I tell my families is, is your microbiome is your gut's fingerprint. And living in the same home, you might all eat the same diet. You guys all might be coneheads and, you know, everything's the same, but your microbiome's different. So to say that one diet is going to work for every individual is is false. Um, What I'm hearing too is from both of you is diet is, and what I've discovered, and we think it is simple. We think we can follow Canada's food guide and we can take and intake these foods and that we're going to be better and we're going to be healthy and we're going to be all of these things. But it is a very difficult world to navigate it. Hence why professionals like yourselves need to be trained in order to navigate this world. So especially for people with IBD, you know, you need to see a registered dietitian. You, and if someone is not suggesting that you go, then I am suggesting that you go. Uh-huh. If you can hear so me my now. Like, to that too is, is we practice much like physicians. So you're not going to go to a cardiologist to get information about your gut. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, there might be colleagues that we have that haven't, you know, experienced, you know, a patient with IBD and, and so, you know, needs to look at the evidence that's out there and maybe provide you with some basic information around healthy eating that then you personally feel, well, this is useless for me. I'm looking for that diet for my UC. No, um, I think, it, you know, we, so we, we have to be, more, be careful yeah. about how this gets translated because while Julie and I can speak to this intently, 
um, maybe not everybody can. So it's really about speaking with your gastroenterologists about your medical community to also access individuals or information, as you say, that's reputable. And that's where we're using this podcast as an opportunity to say, you know, we're on it, we're interested. We know that in the future, there's going to be more dietary guidance. It absolutely is going to happen. I know SickKids is intensely invested in diet and studies. Um, well, I know. Mount hugely. Too. Like, we really this. are. It's happening, everyone. It's out there. We just don't have it yet. But in the meantime, my biggest thing around practices is, okay, Canada, <laughs> there was a great paper that came out um, surveying Canadians and whether or not they think they eat well. And it was of nearly 60% of Canadians. Think they eat well? Yeah. We think we're brilliant. They think that they eat well. So it was very good or excellent, okay? And yet when you actually surveyed based on intake recalls, how well Canadians are eating relative to what, let's say, Julie and I really focus on in terms of eating well and balance and we're terrible. avoiding the process. Absolutely. Poor. Canadians are poor so poor. and very poor. Walk poor and very poor. And see what's on the main floor to, for people to purchase To purchase, food. Yeah. absolutely. Well, right? So we're trying to voice this kind of sort of, we really got to get better at eating well. So when families come to me and they say, oh, well, I want to do X diet. You know, and I'll review the diet with them and what it means. And that if you're really going to try it, you've got to do it. You can't kind of do it. You know, everyone, you can't be kind of pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. Okay. So you can't be kind of doing the diet, right? (laughs) So you're going to commit to it and you're going to commit to it for at least two months. And you're going to see if it makes a difference, right? Okay, fine. I'll, I'll support you in that. But can I just, can I just challenge you before we go there? Can you just start eating well for me? First. First. Yeah. And so then let's take gonna, it to the next step. What were you going to say? I'm going to back up just a little bit to something <laughs> yeah. you you talked about when you when we started talking about how diet might replace medical treatment, which is not what we would ever advocate. But it speaks to um, some people having difficulties trusting their healthcare providers mm-hmm. and the control that sometimes people feel they really want to try and take when they're living with an unpredictable chronic disease. And I think what registered dietitians will do in those situations is work to uncover where knowledge gaps exist or why that person is having trouble trusting. And it might just be that they don't have enough information. So we facilitate a lot of information sharing as well. And I work with a colleague who says um, that the the, the people we work with they don't care what we have to say until they know that we care about them. And so when someone sits down and says, tell me about your experience and you start to develop that trust, then when we provide them with information that's more reliable or evidence-based, it informs their decision-making. Because we know when people leave the hospital, they'll do what works for them, but at least in their minds, they have some new information that they can consider and try and translate into their lives. And if someone said to you, you know, this is a way to eat healthy, it doesn't mean it's easy to right. all of a sudden go and do that. Absolutely. So so our jobs are are quite comprehensive that way in, in that we try and figure out what it is that someone needs to help them, empower them to make better changes 
And that might not mean eating potato chips every day, even though I said that can be healthy. I'm not saying yeah. that's a long-term no, healthy it's strategy. It's not the potato chip diet. Yeah. No. I was told by an RD to eat the potato chips, and then I was told when I needed to stop. I did not yes. make this choice on my own. People, we've learned over yeah. time that what people are able to hear in hospital yes. is not, not always the message that we were trying to give. And that goes for all professions, not just dietitian. Yeah. And so sometimes when they come back, because that's the nature of the disease, yes. you know, some people consider the hospital units where IBD patients are like a second home because they're they can talk about I do. what they're I going. Say, I when I post a picture of Mount Sinai, I'll actually say like, "This is my second home." Second home. Yeah. Yeah. Honest. So it's it's a safe place to talk about these things as well. So. And we encourage yeah. people to be open about it because we do value and appreciate just how complex nutrition and diet is in the entire experience. It's more than just nutrients for nourishment. It's yeah. sustainability. It's quality of life. It's about socialization. Teenagers tell me time and time again, I just want to be normal. Ugh. And normal when this you're a teenager is, you know, playing video games and sitting on the couch. And I refer to it as kaka food. It's basically junk food. Oh my gosh, kaka is my husband's kaka. word. He I love the word kaka. I use it all the time. Anyone who works with me will know. You know, I, I, I always say, sure, there's a place for kaka food. Of course, I eat kaka food as well. However... It's about how can we help you feel, quote, normal, What, but what is normal? And we won't, we can have a whole other podcast discussing that, but what is your goal of being normal and how can we get you there so you can still enjoy it, but do it well? I think That's the difference between going somewhere and somebody telling you, well, just eliminate these 10 foods because they're pro-inflammatory. And your disease and stay will stay that, will stay be like in that remission. Forever. Yeah, and think that and your do body that is forever. I, you know, yeah. the biggest takeaway yeah. I think our listeners need to hear from the both of you, as you know, as our episode comes to a closing here, no. is diet, diet. Um, you would not navigate a medication alone. No, you would not. You would not navigate your medical therapy alone. And when you have a disease that is specifically gastrointestinal, you should not be navigating your food, your diet, and your nutrition alone. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Just like full stop, period. That's you shouldn't be navigating your mental health alone. You shouldn't be navigating. But you should have a big say in how you'd like it to. Yeah, hundred percent. And we we say that same going thing. You all know, the time. There should be a partnership between the professionals who are working to manage your disease and yourself. You should be able. You should ask questions. You should feel comfortable to ask questions. And I would hope that the the people who are helping you, the professionals that are helping you are listening to what you have to say and are taking into consideration the multifaceted elements that you are. Whether you don't want to eat certain foods because of a belief or a religion or just how you feel, taste, taste. <laughs> you know, things, any yeah. of these things, it's a very... It's very complicated. I, I honestly, I feel like the more I learn from people like yourselves and the more I learn from my own experiences and the longer I, I live chronically ill, um, the more I'm starting to begin to realize my, my nutrition and my food and my diet more so than anything is 
possibly the most complicated thing for me to even try to manage on my own because of how much it ebbs and flows. And 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 just to to piggyback onto that comment, that's what makes it so complex to study. Yeah. I think the one thing that um I I, I read in a book, it was written by an immunologist. I can't remember the title now, but she clearly um, and ever so eloquently said, we won't be able to get that grade A evidence for diet because unlike medicine, which is a foreign, sometimes foreign, not always, kind of sort of intervention so you can study um, change over time a little bit easier, nutrients, we can't control where nutrients go. We also can't control how microbes fuel themselves or feed off of what you ate or how they proliferate, how they grow, how they alter. It's a very fascinating um, environment. It's also a very challenging one to measure. And so when we start talking about the future of diets, I want to let everyone who's listening know we are working on it. We're just trying to better understand it because it is so complicated. You won't be able to study a nutrient like you study other things in no. medicine. There, there, there is uh, aspects of it that um, do make it challenging. However, we are hearing everyone. We are just as excited to be able to share information with anyone that's impacted by IBD. So keep asking your um, team about what's out there and what you can do. Definitely try to link up with a nutrition expert who can help guide you. And, and just know that the future, just like the last decade has changed for me, I'm excited about the future decade and what it will bring. And there will be more nutrition information that hopefully will help guide people and be able to complement their care and really now, make a difference. Before we go, as a patient, do we need to get a referral to see a registered dietitian or how does that work? Because if we don't live in Toronto, if I can't come see you, Julie, in Mount Sinai, if, right. I, if I was a child and I couldn't come see you and see kids, what, what do we do? Does it depend? Where it you it are? depends. Yeah, yeah that's depends. A, it's a bit of a loaded question, I, actually. <laughs> I think one of a positive message coming out of that question is that um, the Ontario Health is trying to link people remotely, yes. especially for more northern areas. Like through the PACE program, yes. for example. Yeah. And so there is that change that's coming. and. Yeah. Yeah and to give people access when you don't to feel... To people in centers of excellence like yourselves. Or even right. if you're just a little bit outside of Toronto, but don't feel well enough to travel to in. To come down can, remotely. And some dietitians yeah. will even do some counseling over the telephone or over email as well. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a matter of getting access to somebody who might be restricted by where they work. So for example, to see the dietitians at yeah. Mount Sinai, you need to be a patient, patient. of Mount Sinai. Yes. Likewise, yeah. which means kids. I get to see you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, hopefully not when you're in hospital. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully not. Hopefully not yes. at the point where I've lost 32 pounds yes. in 11 days and I've showed up with my duffel bag in emergency. But no. So okay, but I guess there is obviously it's important perhaps to reach out to your GI specifically to That's, ask to see somebody who's a registered dietitian with a specialty in IBD. That's right, because there's there's a sense of. Different centers function differently and different professionals function differently in terms of how you can access them. Right. So so um, to Julie's point, we would recommend that you connect through your gastroenterologist instead of trying to navigate on your own, because um, that may also be um, a little bit more frustrating. Uh, families have expressed their frustration with their insurance plans not oh, covering dietitians. You know, and like... and and it is costly. It's like trying to do physio after you've had hip replacement. And I'm speaking from my personal experience with my father. 
where I was a bit flabbergasted as a clinician. Really, my dad doesn't get access to physio outside of what the three-day stay was. That was something that we had to pick up as an extra cost. And we were fortunate enough to be able to do that, but not everyone has the ability to do right. that. So, you know, um, that is one roadblock that certainly Dietitians of Canada is working on is to ensure that people who have coverage through their insurance plans can access. Um, Julie and I work at institution centers of excellence where there isn't a quote formal referral per se, but we don't see everybody with the condition. I hope that with, you know, as research evolves and as we become more knowledgeable about the con the connection between nutrition, diet, food, and IBD, I'm hoping that um, there will be more respect and more credibility paid to it from um, our institutions that ensure such proper care. And so yeah, we, we, we ask our so patients too. to yeah. advocate. You guys all out there... We need your voices as well. Julie and I get drowned. Yeah. <laughs> We're both fighters. We've known each other for years. We are not quiet about this, um, but uh, we feel that patients make the difference. You guys can be the advocates to push for this. We, we know that I there's an interest, we, there is a need. I feel like so, IBG warriors need to do something with toilet paper. <laughs> like just, just we have to. I yes. Let's <laughs> yeah, do absolutely. it. Like, or hospitals it? where there's not four people using the same the washroom. Same washroom. Oh, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. We have the, the newer <laughs> hospitals are getting that, the poor old buildings in downtown I Toronto. Yes. So I, yeah, like, they're not so there yet. I was at a point where one of my flares, I was having between 40 and 50 bowel movements a day. Oh, okay, and it was it was just liquid. Yes, of course. Like there was nothing. It was just liquid, and I remember going to emerge, and they put me in a room mm -hmm. that was like at least seven doors away in a hospital from a bathroom. Wow. And then they brought me in one of those like wheelchairs that looks, that's like a toilet. What do they call them? Commodes. Commode. I call them the beamers. They brought the beamers me in a is what I call them. And I was them. like, let me tell you, like I got very angry. I apologize for the people I yelled at. But I got there and I was like, you do not expect me to, to wheel myself. But to sit in this commode in this open air room yeah. and do what yeah. I need to do 40 yes. to 50 times a day. Where's like the you dignity better... in that. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then my GI, my previous GI, who I adore, was not the one who diagnosed me. I do not adore that person. Um, but my GI, for previous to Dr. Silverberg, um, I actually had let her know that I was in the hospital down in emergency. She just so happened to be working. And I could hear her shoes. I could hear her clicking as she was coming down. And before she even got to where I was, she was yelling, why is she in this room? You need to move her. Like, <laughs> right. just like, click, 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 click. I was like, here she comes. <laughs> like, yeah. my, I remember my mom was there and she was like, that must be your doctor. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> like, it's just Thank come. goodness. Yeah, yes. right? Yeah. So yeah. you said like, where is the dignity in that? But no, that's a whole, again, that's a whole nother but no, but it's a voice though, and you are a voice, yeah. and we thank you for that. And so to all thank the other, no, yes, thank you for people being who here. experience this, I, I we, speak we on, hear you. And yeah, I speak on behalf of everybody who's listening, whether you are an IBD warrior or a sidekick. Um, we are so grateful that you've taken your time. You ladies are are very busy, um, and stretched thin. Um, so being here on a weekend, um, I personally, as a patient, not as the host of this show, but as a patient, I appreciate what you do. Um, I can't even imagine how difficult it must be um and i i i cannot wait for the day that you are properly respected for what you're doing so that you can help us the way that we need to be helped because it sucks yes yeah and we really genuinely 
genuinely, thank you for the opportunity to come here. We I don't, think I'm uh, overly emotional because I'm in so much pain today. So I'm you just don't, like, you, you don't, don't have to, to explain yeah. anything. And Ever. you don't even have to apologize to people that you think you were maybe a little bit snippy with in a hospital. We know people yes, are not yeah. at their best. You're not at we your best when you come pain. to us. I and adore what the two of you do, what you are dedicating your lives to. And, and we and admire what you're doing because yeah. we know that takes a lot of energy and a lot of motivation. And it clearly speaks to the kind of person you are that you're sharing very much so. when you already have so much on your plate to deal Thank with. You. So we do. We actually really admire the people we work yes. with. I've learned more from my families and my patients um, during my own personal and professional journey. Um, and we thank you for letting us come here. Thank you. And to our listeners, I we thank you for listening and being there. And we really hope that I really hope that this episode has really given you like the knowledge and the comfortability and um, even just the strength to advocate for yourself and ask to see a registered dietitian and be open and patient <laughs> when um, working with your registered dietitian and navigating your relationship with food. But don't do it alone or from the advice of some ridiculous website that you Google <laughs> searched or somebody told you on a Reddit thread or a Facebook social group. And we um, look forward to coming back with oh, maybe please, some more insights. Please like, come back. Oh, I can't again. wait till we do the episode. Even uh, <laughs> we do another episode a few years from now and it's like registered dietitians are, are insured by all in companies <laughs> and you can go and see them endlessly like your GP and your GI one day. We'll get there. Yes. And, and yeah, we look forward to coming back and chatting more and hopefully um, getting feedback from all the warriors out there. Let us know what you want to know about. Let us know what we can help you answer. And yes. and it's been great. Chantal, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Listeners, find us on Facebook and Twitter at, um, at Guts and Glory, uh, G-T-S-N-G-L-R-Y. Uh, we will post this episode and share the loveliness that these two ladies brought to us today. Uh, strength and positive thoughts. Thanks for listening to Guts and Glory. This podcast is produced by Bang Albino Inc.